All right, everybody. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, today I have on Zach Robinson. Is that right? And Josh, uh, how do I say your na- uh, last name, Josh? I was not completely Give me your sure. best shot, man. I'm kind of curious. Uh, Pelland. Oh, right on the money, man. That was good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not that many ways to screw, screw it up, but I just hate it when You'd people- be surprised butcher butcher people's names on podcasts i only did it with um stefan guiana i said stefan uh, which is not the end of the world but still yeah so we will have a great convo i hope uh about reps in reserve proximity to failure and how important it is to train close to failure or how unimportant it is it's been a topic that's been irking me quite a lot um I've been coming from a, a background where I thought I more or less understood everything. That's not not everything, but like the big key pieces of what's required to make gains. Sort of my stance was that, okay, so effort is essential. You need to be close enough to failure. Um, you don't need to train to failure, but at least like one, two, three, maybe four, five. Uh, no, like four is about the cutoff. So like you don't want to be training further from failure than that. Um, and while it's not required to train close to failure, as close as maybe one rep away from failure, there is probably an increase in the actual like stimulus that you get when you train uh, closer and closer. And even training to failure would probably be better technically, but maybe the disproportionate fatigue that you get at that point is just not worthwhile. And then uh, Dr. Mike Zordos was the one who, I, at least I first heard, kind of raising the point that, well, you, maybe you could train as far as like five, six reps away from failure. And that could be sufficient to like really maximize the, the gains for hypertrophy, at least. And, and to me, that was one of those things where I just said, Man, like I, I'm not smart enough to tell why that's wrong, but I know that's wrong. <laughs> um, but of course, like I, I had to humble myself. So I, I try to keep an open mind and, and hopefully uh, you guys will um, be able to uh, make me see what, what I'm missing. So that's kind of as a general intro. But first, uh, just a couple of words about you guys. So can you just in a one or two sentences, just outline like what you do and also like how you got involved in this uh, the research surrounding this whole thing? Yes, uh, I'll quickly do this. Uh, uh, this is Josh and I's least favorite part of every podcast, but mm-hmm. um, we, we have a pretty similar background. Um, Josh and I met um, in undergrad at uh, Ohio State uh, University, where we kind of got involved in research there, um, started um, the company there as well that we kind of coach athletes with and do some educational stuff as well along that process. Uh, we both kind of came down to Florida Atlantic University to pursue our master's degree. Um, and then both of us, uh, I started my PhD this past semester and Josh will be starting his here in a little bit. We uh, are at FAU's Muscle Physiology Lab, and this has been one of the topics that we have um, investigated um, recently and kind of have taken a, um, a pretty strong interest in. Um, I think there, uh, Josh just recently published a review paper, his first author. We kind of go through the research, talk about some methodological considerations for this area of research that I think um, gives us kind of a both in the trenches view of, uh, you know, a training study that investigates this topic, but also kind of the overview of the, the research and the, and the methodology and used to investigate it. Um, as far as um, I think Josh and I have both been lifting for a long time and kind of just fell in love with it and kind of 
led to us pursuing this at, at an academic level. But we like to think at least we have a good balance of the practical experience and aren't just some stiff guys in lab coats. And we never wear lab coats, to be clear, <laughs> but mm -hmm. um, doing the research. So, Josh, I don't know if I missed anything, but that's pretty, pretty rough. Now, the, j just a super quick thing to piggyback off that is to say, like, hopefully we'll do our best to be clear when we're talking about, like, our interpretation of the research versus kind of our practical take on it, right? Which can diverge at times because, um, you know, I, I imagine the the typical listener here is probably more focused on body composition and hypertrophy outcomes, whereas we, uh, our, our primary clientele, what we, we often think about is our, our strength athletes. Um, so there's probably going to be some, some divergences there as well. So just kind of wanted to point out that hopefully we can provide, like Zach said, both of those perspectives in terms of uh, an objective look, uh, objective look at the literature as well as uh, practical um, applications given, as I'm sure we'll talk about, some of the uncertainty in the literature. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. That sounds really cool. Um, so first of all, let me ask you what I just said in my own intro, what my perspective has been historically on this. I'm curious before you uh, like really delved into the research on this, what was your, like, if I asked you, I don't know, a couple of years ago before you knew what you know now, what, what would you have said? Like, um, if someone wants to maximize gains first for hypertrophy, but maybe also for strength, like what, what should they know about, uh, proximity to failure, training to failure and all of, all of those cool stuff. Um, Zach, maybe you first. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a hard question. I think, um, so it's probably relevant to some degree, kind of the background that I came from for lifting. So I, I probably care, came into lifting and like starting to care about it and, and look into this stuff from like a sports background and like sprinting and, and athletics and stuff like that. So I kind of came across like West side barbell and, and stuff like that was kind of the first area I got into prior to kind of coming into more of like the strength and physique kind of oriented uh, place. So I think I've always had kind of that, mindset that like has applied some different lens of thinking about this problem, I think potentially, but particularly when we're talking about hypertrophy, when you kind of get into this world, I think the first model that I really like thought about proximity to failure and like started um, thinking about that at a very intentional level from like a training program perspective was definitely like the effective reps model from Chris Beardsley. Mm -hmm. I think that um, for a lot of people, I think that just helped to reconcile, you know, the first kind of thing you hear probably as you enter kind of the, the science-based uh, fitness world is like, oh, the eight to 12 rep range isn't inherently beneficial. So then you start to learn about, oh, we can have hypertrophy across the spectrum of rep ranges. And then you're like, okay, well then a hard set is how we count volume. But then again, from like a strength oriented kind of place, you have this weird want sets of one to four reps. Like, what do we do with that? Um, and it's hard to kind of classify that into the hard set world. Obviously for hypertrophy, you're, you know, probably on average, you're going to be training with the five plus rep ranges in which it's a little bit more clear cut. But again, from our perspective, when you're trying to quantify volume for hypertrophy within a strength athlete, that's where those sets of one to four reps kind of get thrown under the rug from a hard set perspective. So mm -hmm. the effective reps model, I think was like the first kind of model and probably would pretty, uh, pretty strongly like. Uh, classify my views at least at first before I uh, really dug into this stuff and, and realized how complicated and like Josh said I think the number one word here is uncertainty mm. awesome Josh what about you I um 
when you first uh, asked this question, Abel, I was, I was thinking back to when Zach and I first met and, and kind of started started coaching people. Um, <laughs> we we would have discussions about like how how should we quantify this this relationship between this kind of dose response relationship between proximity to failure and hypertrophy outcomes. So we actually very much. Um, when we started thinking about this question, our biases were more so towards the, you know, Hey, how do we, how do we, we, I think we were bought into not always training to failure, but we were, okay, let's live in that like one to two RAR range. Right. Mm -hmm. And then from there, um, I know Zach got exposed to a specific individual named John Hanley, um, who is, is kind of an under the radar guy, um, that, uh, has some really, really interesting thoughts and that kind of, sparked some discussion between Zach and I, and, and then, okay, now let's actually dive into the literature. Let's see what this says. And I think we are still kind of at the point that, you know, those, those initial thoughts of, Hey, got to live in that like zero to two, zero to three RAR range, 100% of the time, or at least we have to do that is definitely not our opinion now. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's kind of been the, the overarching, you know, change over, over time. Right. And, and, um, Maybe one of you can answer this for both of you guys, but what, what do you mainly train for at the moment, more so for hypertrophy or for, for strength? I've come, I guess I'll answer for Josh first. Josh, Josh is prepping for a powerlifting meet currently, so I'd say that probably pretty strongly uh, classifies his, his goals, but also, you know, I think never seen Josh not do some sort of like hypertrophy oriented work in a session he's ever done. So I, I think he's pretty strongly characterized as somebody who does a little bit of both. Um, myself, I've kind of been a little bit all over the place. I've had some weird injury things. I collapsed a lung and that, you know, it's oh. had a, had a pretty weird spiral of stuff that's taken me kind of off the radar, but, um, I would say primarily trained for strength, but similar to Josh, I think the way that we view training for strength has a very strong component of maximizing muscle size. So I think, that's kind of why we live in both worlds for the most part is we kind of see one as a very strong tool to maximize the other. So, um, you know, somebody could take a look at one of our programs and say, okay, you do a bodybuilding program with a couple heavy sets a week kind of thing. And, and it wouldn't be drastically different. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, so before we talk about like how far we need to be from failure and what the science says about that, maybe Let's talk about the thing that is discussed quite a lot these days, but I think uh, we shouldn't skip over it either. And that's the, you know, the definition of failure topic. Um, so at, at this point in time, if I'm not mistaken, there's still not no such thing as a consensus statement in the industry of what, what that actually means, right? Yeah. So Zach, Zach alluded to the paper we recently published, and this was a, a specific section on that topic. And I think this is a fundamental um, consideration and something we all kind of have to agree on and kind of what we proposed in that, in that paper is that we should define it as the inability to complete a repetition despite maximal intent to do so. Right. So in other words, if you complete a repetition, you attempt another repetition. Um, you, you can't just necessarily say that zero RAR and failure are synonymous because there's always the possibility that more reps are in the tank. Now you run into some practical issues there because if, you know, someone's in a laboratory and they complete an all out grinder squat, uh, squat repetition, you know, are you actually going to ask them to, to do another repetition? No, but, um, I think just theoretically that should be our, our kind of anchor point. And the fact that that hasn't necessarily been a consistent, um, anchor point across the entire body literature leads to some interesting implications. 
the, there's kind of two possibilities here, right? Um, the first possibility is that, hey, no one's actually kind of gone there, if you will. No one's actually gone to like this true failure point, or at least not, you know, in, in, in a lot of these studies. And thus, there is something magical once you kind of go to that true failure point. Mm. That's a possibility we are totally open to. I personally don't think that's the case if, if I was a betting man. But again, that, that option's still on the table. Second possibility is that, hey, the way they kind of define quote unquote failure or the way they actually execute it in these in, in these labs is actually more like, you know, kind of like a, a, a zero to zero and a half RAR or maybe even more because of some of those constraints I noted. And thus, we can kind of take those recommendations or, or some of those um, those outcomes we see in the research and kind of shift them back even further from failure by one or two RAR. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And because, for example, a lot of the studies will use, quote unquote, volitional failure, which is essentially, um, you know, it's it's up to the subject when they think they don't have any left. Um, and again, you can thus probably assume that um, a lot of these subjects, you know, have more than they think they do. So lot, lots of uncertainty there. I think the only thing I'd add real quick to that is, at least from a practical perspective, I think is pretty important is the addition to the definition of within the technical constraints that are defined a priori. I think that's an important thing. So like just an easy example, you take a bicep curl, um, you know, you take that to momentary failure with, you know, proper technique, whatever you want to call that, uh, maybe elbows not moving at all, but then you, you know, can perform some cheat repetitions on a, on a barbell curl. And I also think that's why uh, Fisher and, and a couple other authors, James Steele was on that paper as well recently, um, had in one of the introduction of their recent review papers where they talked about some people use the term momentary muscular failure, where probably isn't totally accurate because, you know, you could perform a set to momentary failure and your muscle can still produce force. It's just not within the, the constraints in which you're actually performing the exercise. So I think task failure or momentary failure are probably better terms for that reason. And I think part of that, especially the task failure one, I think is about appropriately defining the constraints of the exercise a priori so that you know what you're actually measuring those against. So I think that's an important uh, consideration too, which often, again, leads to uncertainty in the research that we have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like those are all, all great points. Uh, like one thing I, I always wonder about is so yeah, I, th- I think that's relatively safe to say that probably most people, in, including the research, when they say training to failure, they don't mean that they actually failed a rep. Like I think actually may- maybe in the case of Fisher and Steele, like in some of their studies, it might happen more frequently because I... I've seen some of their training footages and they're also like kind of um, like they present on a lot of these um, like symposiums with uh, high intensity training. And like they also use like super slow. I, I've seen a lot of their stuff when they actually like the person is actually like failed already. Like the bar is not moving. It's like, come on, come on, push more. And so they're like inroading a lot. Uh, so like may- maybe they're actually doing that. Um, but what I'm wondering about is like how big of a role do you think that actually plays in, for example, the fatigue that is caused by training to failure? Because that's one of the points that is always brought up. Like the reason you shouldn't train to failure is because like the the extra fatigue that you get, like if someone is just training to the point where, okay, like the next rep, I would definitely fail versus actually failing a rep. Like, 
I don't know. I mean, it's, I know it's hard to quantify, but what would you expect? Like, is this like a huge difference? Um, not, not so much like, uh, I don't know, Zach, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's kind of three things on this question that I, I always kind of think about, like when, like you said, it's, it's kind of a, and it, we've, we've definitely done this too. So I'm not, I'm not saying this is uh, something we haven't been subject to as well, but um, classic tagline when you're talking about proximity to failure and training is like, yeah, um, you know, we need to train close to failure. However, you go too close to failure, the fatigue is so much higher. That's everyone. Everyone says that when talking about this topic, but I think there's three main considerations that often probably aren't discussed. The first one is, and the biggest one in my mind is like almost all the studies that, that, that claim is based on are non-habituated, um, individuals to training to failure meaning it's an acute study. They bring them in, they'll have one session where they train to failure or don't train to failure. And they look at the acute fatigue and almost always training to failure is disproportionately greater fatigue 48 to 72 hours later. However, there is very little, if any data to my knowledge that looks at the time course of recovery after a training program in which somebody is habituated to training that way. And of course we know that's possible because all not all is not the right word. A few training studies very clearly define um, momentary failure in their methods to which we can expect over the course of the training program, they actually are doing that and people don't internally combust because they're able to complete it and they, they hypertrophy, meaning that there is a reasonable way to construct a training program, which you train a momentary failure on every set. So in my mind, I, I don't even know if it's like, I think the data we have is more accurate to use in, in the the uh, context of if I have a beginner or somebody, you know, maybe that's a recreationally trained athlete as a client, maybe I don't want to wreck them with, you know, five sets to, to momentary failure on the first couple of sessions in the first week that they're working with me. I think that's probably more accurate to which that data can be perfectly applied. Now, of course, I still think it's useful to, to have those comparisons, but it's just an important consideration to keep in mind is that we know the repeated bout effects of thing. We know you can adapt to a wide variety of training stimulus. And because we don't have that longitudinal data looking at the time course of recovery, to my knowledge, I think we need to be a little bit more cautious with um, the fatigue uh, questions. The other thing is uh, we have pretty pretty polarized comparisons of reps and reserve to my knowledge in these studies for the most part. I think the only one that kind of goes through a range of RARs is one of the Preja Blanco studies. But the reason that's the case is because they decrease the repetition ranges a ton. So it's kind of a two, two variable change there. So we really only have studies that um, compare training very far from failure to fair failure or very close to it on kind of this very polarized thing to which I think anybody who's trained and has done both of these protocols, pretty obvious, you're going to have greater fatigue, um, in the, um, groups training very close to failure. Um, so that isn't particularly informative. We have one recent study, um, that I think compared all sets to, to failure versus, you know, most sets like three RAR and the last set to failure. And I don't think the fatigue was very much different in that instance, which I think is more accurate to the way that people generally train for hypertrophy to which suggests there's, you know, still some fatigue from that last set training to failure probably, but, um, does that ultimately impact outcomes? I don't know again, cause we don't really have the, the longitudinal study there. And the last thing I'll say before I let Josh chime in here is, um, I I'm just somewhat skeptical in the way that we measure fatigue and how that even really matters in, in a lot of these instances, like a lot of, a lot of the, the, um, studies out of, out of the Spanish labs that, you know, are really good citations that people use a lot because they're really well-controlled and well-done studies. 
they come from more of like a team sports background as well. So they're always testing counter movement, jump velocity at low loads and, and these kind of things, which makes perfect context in, in the way that they're uh, and generally the purpose that they're doing the research for, but things like hypertrophy, uh, I, I don't know how exactly applicable that is. And, and even, even I, I've had um, conversations before too, like you'll hear people say, well, yeah, you don't want to be fatigued because that's going to harm your weekly volume and frequency. And generally when they say volume there, they're meaning volume load, meaning mm. you're going to have to reduce the weight on one of your next sessions. Now, of course, I think performance is something we want to keep in mind when designing a training program for hypertrophy, but I am also skeptical that you need to have maximal performance for hypertrophy. Um, mm. And so like a little bit of volume load decreasing in a, in a session later that week, I'm not totally concerned about so long as the weekly sets are similar. Um, so that's like another thing that I just think the way that we measure fatigue don't always know if that's indicative of the thing that is actually holding us back within a program, if that makes sense. But I was mm. ranting there for a long time. So you, you Josh can chime in. Yeah, go for it, Abel. I don't think I have anything specifically to add on that point. Um, yeah, no, it's it's um, like what what you mentioned, Zach, uh, is is interesting because that made me think of a couple of things. I actually saw, I think you guys had a podcast on auto-regulating volume. Uh, did I see that right that you guys discussed that? I, I haven't heard that episode specifically, but I think th that is actually a big consideration because if I'm just thinking about how a lot of people program, like they will do, for example, straight sets, or they will have like a rep range that they will shoot for in every set. And I could see that, that if, for example, someone is training like very close to failure, maybe even failing grabs, but at least like a, a real zero RIR, but then they have a preset rep range. So they will always adjust the load. Then I guess in that case, I could see that you're always able to like adjust the load enough so that you're still getting in like a very similar total volume load, but you're training very hard. Like that could actually escalate fatigue pretty quickly. But if you, if you auto-regulate auto your volume, at least to the extent that you're allowing the reps to drop off, like that's actually what I do a lot. Like I will have a rep target in the first set, might be 12 or something, but then I will let it drop to like eight and then six or something like that, then I think it could, it, I mean, from my own experience, like I, I've been training like that for a, quite a while. And yeah, I mean, I had times when I made better gains than other times, but I just don't see this like massive accumulation of fatigue that uh, prevents me from, I mean, I don't even really do traditional deloads, honestly. Like I had like, I don't know, 600, no, not 600, but like the 350 days consecutive days in the gym without even taking a rest day not saying that that that's great but like um i think that just goes to show that like you don't necessarily like overtrain or like just like you said combust from all the excess fatigue um of course like case study of one but um yeah so like 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 what do you think about that do you think that um at least some sort of like volume auto regulation is important in in that case and if you don't do that, then the excess fatigue could be a real concern if you if you do this kind of thing. So I think I think kind of making sure like we're on the same page when we when we talk about volume auto regulation is 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 important here. So I think there's kind of two approaches you can take to it. The first would be auto-regulating set volume. So in other words, giving like a range of sets, right? And then auto-regulating mm -hmm. that variable. Yeah. Whereas I think, uh, Abel, what you're saying, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is basically you're saying, 
hey, by adjusting reps per set as fatigue sets in within the session, um, you know, that's how we're auto-regulating volume, at least, at least in this case. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I, I personally think that that is the, the, the right thing to do, if you will. Right. Like I, that's mm-hmm. typically how we would do it in practice. Um, I don't think, and, and Zach kind of alluded to this a little bit ago and, and, and Abel, you did as well. I don't think performance, or at least, you know, based on, you know, kind of what I've read and, and, just, just practical experience. I don't think performance is a primary variable driving the um, kind of the benefits you can see from a given set. Um, so for example, like we, we have multiple studies on drop sets now kind of indicating that, Hey, we basically are artificially putting ourselves in a worst um, in a worse position to perform right by having that fatigue from, from the previous set right before the drop set. And we see that those kind of on a set to set basis, seem to be do pretty dang good in terms of simulating hypertrophy. Um, also we have some research looking at like weekly distribution of a given amount of volume. So like if you train the same muscle group, like I, I think some of these studies even do it on back-to-back days compared to like evenly spacing it out throughout the week. Obviously, if you're training a muscle group on back-to-back days, you're, you're going to have worse performance on that second day. And those studies also don't, uh, show differences in, um, in hypertrophy outcome. So again, I think that to answer your question, Abel, I think that's absolutely the way to go. I kind of think of, of like the training stimulus for hypertrophy as the number of sets being performed and the RAR of those sets. And then you kind of allow, um, the reps per set, um, and the load to adjust from there as a result of those variables. Mm -hmm. Two cleanup points real quick. First thing, I just don't, don't want Josh to be misinterpreted when he's talking about, and I said this as well, um, performance not being like a primary driver necessarily for, for uh, hypertrophy um, because of the drop set research, rest pause research, and the and kind of the organization throughout the week, that's acutely. So that just means that the way that you're establishing your training protocol in the short term is potentially going to harm your performance. If I'm performing straight sets on bench press with like a first set target rep range of 12, like you said, that's going to maybe end up me on my last set getting eight reps, let's say. And on the drop set condition, I'm probably going to end up, if I take everything to the same RER, probably going to get like four or something like that. Mm-hmm. So acutely that's harming your performance, but that doesn't mean that you're setting up training. So that long-term you're not ma- ha- establishing progressive overload. That's still obviously very important. So I just don't want him to be misinterpreted there, but the yeah. acute performance doesn't necessarily seem to be super imminent. Um, and then I think I forgot the second point that I was going to say, but I'll, I'll take it over to you guys. That, that one, I, I wanted to make sure I chimed in there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, 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 that's a good point. Um, I think I heard Mike Israel say on a Q and a, like a long time ago where he said your reps, like someone asked about like the, the problem with your reps going down and then like, well, but over what time course do you mean that like week to week, your reps going down on a lift, that means everything. From set to set in one session, that means absolutely nothing because you know you get tired, so that that's normal. Yeah, that, uh, that that's exactly what I was gonna. Actually, that's I remember what I was gonna say is ideally, probably you still want the the sets to be above whatever bottom end cutoff of the hypertrophy range, like per set stimulus. You, you you want to have above. So like if if we go back to that imaginary protocol of like starting with you know somewhere between twelve to fifteen reps at a two RIR on our first set. If, if your reps drop below maybe like five or six, maybe in that instance, that's when you drop the load just to make sure that each set is theoretically, uh, you know, maximally stimulative due to that, how many reps are in it. Although I know that is a 
not a clearly, you know, flushed out point. I know Greg, for example, um, Greg Knuckles would, would dispute whether like sets of three or four on a per set basis are less stimulative growth. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I, I think that's, a contentious point that isn't perfectly laid out, but like from a practical perspective, I would say in general, you know, you probably don't want your reps to drop too, too much in, in which maybe in a reduction in a load, maybe is a little bit more efficient to make sure your reps are staying, you know, above some, some bottom end threshold. But that's again, just a practical consideration. Yeah. Just another quick practical thing to throw in here is, you know, we're kind of talking about how these acute, let's say like within an exercise across multiple sets, performance dropping off that not seeming to really influence the training out, uh, the, the, the benefits, the, the hypertrophy stimulus you're receiving from that. Um, but you also want performance as a metric for how things are, are progressing, right? So like something in practice I'll typically do, cause you know, we, we, we primarily work with strength athletes, but as Zach mentioned before, we think long-term hypertrophy outcomes are, are going to play a, a massive role in long-term strength gains. And also we'll have athletes that, you know, want to just focus on hypertrophy for a, for a, extended period of time. But what I'll do is I'll kind of do like a first set tester set, right? So in other words, like, Hey, we're going to do this first set, maybe in like the, the six to eight rep range at a relatively low RAR, maybe like one or two RAR so that we can be pretty dang confident in the accuracy of that RAR. Mm -hmm. And then you can have them, um, you can have them either drop load and maintain reps for the, the next sets or, um, drop load or excuse me, drop reps and maintain load for, for the next sets. Right. So in, in other words, you're kind of like making that first set closer to failure, a nice accurate gauge of performance. And then maybe those later sets are going to be slightly further from failure, allow you to, um, kind of accumulate, uh, some training volume that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That, 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 that's cool. Um, okay. So we actually like went like pretty deep into some niche stuff here. So, uh, so probably we should have gone the other way around, but like um, maybe now actually let's get into what what does your research that you you dug into and that you conducted like what do you think at this point about training uh, or um, intensiveness so failure proximity so how close do we need to train to failure to make the best gains possible so let's start with hypertrophy and then we can also touch on strength so um, whichever. One of you want to take that away. Cool. Yeah. So I think, I mean, the first thing to get out the gate here is like, I think in this conversation, it's easy to be overly confident in the mechanisms that underlie hypertrophy. I think there's a lot of things that we still don't know. Like, I think it's pretty common to hear, like even people that are like maybe less, um, close to like interacting with the research, even like talk about mechanical tension and metabolic yeah. stress and stuff like that. And I think, it's probably easy to be a little bit overconfident in that. I think there's a ton of things we don't know. Um, as far as like, even, even one thing is like just defining when mechanical tension is at its highest throughout a set like that, you know, I've had conversations with, you know, Brian minor, I mean, have gone back and forth and talked about that a lot. And, you know, it, it makes sense in theory, because I think we have these anecdotes that, you know, for hypertrophy on average training closer to failure is probably more efficient than training farther from failure. I think pretty much everybody's going to agree with that. It's just the threshold in which you call close and far from failure is, is the question. Yeah. But, um, then it's like, we try to explain the mechanisms that are associated with that anecdote and, and, and observations thereof. So I think that's where I just think the conversations are difficult. So it's like, 
if you're using those mechanisms to justify your threshold, I think that's where it's just really, really hard to have a lot of confidence in those arguments to which, in our opinion, at least, we should just use the experimental evidence that we have to try to best establish those thresholds um, because that that seems to be, to us at least, the, the evidence that we can be the most confident in because it's obviously measuring what we're actually talking about rather than saying, well, I have this rodent study when they fatigue the fibers and the, you know, the, the force production per fiber increase, like that kind of argumentation I think is difficult to be confident in based on all the, the, the factors that can conflict that feedback loops, you know, potentiatory mechanisms and inhibiting mechanisms and all that stuff that stacks up to ultimately get to the thing that we actually care about. So with that disclaimer out of the way, um, like I said, I think we are, our kind of stance on this is going to predominantly come from the experimental research that we have, which to be very clear as Josh's review paper that he recently published um, clearly lays out, there's a ton of issues in this to like very, pinpoint target RARs and, and that kind of thing. It, it's challenging. So I think to get started, um, the, the few factors I want to outline that kind of probably influence where on this spectrum that we should be on a per set basis to maximize muscle growth. There's a few things we want to lay out. I think the first one to talk about is load. So when I talk about load, I think that's the percentage of one RM that you're utilizing. Um, there's a bunch of different mechanistic ways you can explain it, but in general, the heavier percentage of 1RM that you're utilizing or the lower repetition range that you're utilizing, um, probably the farther from failure you can be. And that's probably because the effort or not efforts, probably not a good word. So I'm going to touch on that in a second, but the proximity to failure of the first repetition of that heavy set is just closer to failure than a first repetition set uh, first rep of the set than with like 30% of one RM. So if I'm using 80% of one RM, that first rep is probably somewhere on average between seven and eight reps of failure. The first rep of 30% of one RM is obviously considerably farther than that. So that's the first thing in training studies that utilize moderate to heavy loads versus ones that use lower loads in general, there seems to be somewhat convincing evidence. You can stay a little bit farther from failure. Now that's not because the low load studies say you have to trade a failure. It's just, we don't have that evidence to really investigate um, mm. training far from failure with low loads, but heavier loads. I'm fairly confident in saying greater than like 10 RM loads. You seem to be able to manipulate proximity to failure um, pretty strongly. You know, you can do some studies will take like six sets of five versus four, four, uh, three sets of 10 with uh, 75% of one RM or like a 10 RM load and generally find equivalent hypertrophy for the most part. Um, so that's the way that load kind of interacts with that. The next thing would be uh, exercise selection. And I think this is something that's pretty important uh, because depending on the exercise, uh, the research that we have was probably one thing that kind of leans in, in either direction. So multi-joint exercises like squats and bench press, they're multi-joint. So we generally think of those as more fatiguing exercises or actually loaded, whatever you want to say there. But also on average, I would say they're more difficult in a, when the muscles at a more stretched position. And for whatever reason, you know, we have other research kind of investigating that question that seems to be, you know, somewhat independently hypertrophic. So for those exercises that are generally more challenging in the stretch position and and at least in practice, we also usually train with lower repetition ranges and heavier loads. You probably can stay a little bit farther from failure on average with those as well. Um, so mm -hmm. that would be like comparing again, like a squat versus something like a uh, leg extension. So leg extension is generally most challenging at the top when the muscles in a very contracted position, you probably need to go slightly closer to failure on that exercise than a squat potentially. 
Mm. And then the last thing I'll touch on for Josh and clean up. Cause I think my brain's going short on other factors that may impact this, but I'll, I'll mention one more. And when you said effort, I think that's another really important thing that doesn't often get discussed. So when people say effort generally, again, this is coming from kind of a hypertrophy conversation that immediately in people's mind kind of goes to proximity to failure. And I think the same thing happens with intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, from a strength oriented perspective, again, it's kind of where we live most of the time in our minds, effort defines something different. And that's really the intended concentric velocity of a repetition. So for exercises or just for repetitions in which you are trying to accelerate the mass as fast as you possibly can, that also seems to have at least, you know, from a, from an observational perspective, um, have some influence on the, on the research that seems to maximize hypertrophy farther from failure. It's generally the studies that um, tell somebody to accelerate a load as fast as physically possible. That doesn't mean the bar speed is fast necessarily. If you're lifting heavier loads, you're lifting somewhat close to failure, the bar speed is going to slow down, but it's the intention to try to maximally accelerate that load. Um, You know, you could speculate that's greater motor unit recruitment farther from failure. You could speculate a lot of things why that um, is the case, but um, ultimately, the outcomes seem to be um, positive in, in favor of that being able to maximize hypertrophy a little bit farther from failure. Um, Josh, what I miss? Yeah, just to hopefully kind of like recap that and then at like make it as practical as possible, even though we clearly don't like to give um, hard cutoffs. Um, so, so Zach kind of said that, hey, when load is heavy enough, so somewhere around like a 10 to a 12 rep max, um, you know, 75 to 80% of one rem, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, or heavier, we we personally like don't think that proximity to failure is a variable that's going to drive the hypertrophic response. So in other words, you can kind of think of it more so as just the total number of reps accumulated at that given load, again, so long as it's heavy enough, you know, somewhere around 80% or above. Hmm. But a lot of hypertrophy training is going to be lighter than that. And in those cases, we're less confident that proximity to failure is not going to be driving um, the hypertrophic response. And then you take a step back and you just think about the research as a whole. You really need to, to internalize that training closer to failure or all the way to failure, it's never worse for hypertrophy outcomes. So the way that I like to think of it is like a cost-benefit analysis. For us, when we're coaching a strength athlete and we want them to get a lot of practice with like 80% plus, Hey, if we can do a bunch of doubles at 80%, we might be able to do way more volume. We might be able to have way more energy for the bench press that's coming right after in this session. Um, but you know, if you're, um, if you're thinking about training with lighter loads on something like a, an exercise that is just anecdotally inherently less fatiguing, Hey, there's really no downside to going closer to failure. Right. And, and our confidence that going closer to failure, um, you know, is, is going to, um, you know, like ha- have a downside is less. So again, that cost benefit analysis, I think is huge. And that's why if I was, you know, writing a hypertrophy focused program, we're very rarely going to go above four reps in reserve just for that practical reason in terms of, in terms of that cost benefit analysis. I don't think there's a, a huge downside to, you know, training in that like two to four RER range on a lot of like hypertrophy focused movements. Yeah, I'll add a few more things in here. I just thought of that I think are also important aspects of the research to take into consideration. Um, so we talked about the the fatigue thing and how we're probably not super confident that research is like, you know, directly applicable to what we're talking about here, especially for people that are intermediate and advanced. I'm, I'm not totally sure that is super relevant, but 
the one thing I think is important to talk about is like if we had a like a, a plot of the the research that's been done and the sessions per week or the frequency per muscle per week and the and the total volume on average i think that's going to be considerably lower than what people are actually doing um that are intermediate to advanced trainees um in the gym so i I do think that that's where kind of that practical recommendation of i totally agree with josh if anything when we're having these theoretical conversations and we're talking about the proximity to failure that maximizes hypertrophy, if I'm not sure where the threshold is, I'm going to lean closer to failure every single day of the week. Hmm. Um, but I do think that, you know, training all the, all the way to failure for all sets, that's where you probably take that one step back to that recommendation that people generally come, um, to, which I think is a practical recommendation. Again, from a pure research perspective, I think the range of like saying one to four reps in reserve, that's been, studied or that's been, I'm skeptical of that claim. I don't think that's totally accurate. I would just say from a practical perspective, talked about this, all the stuff we just mentioned, I think that's a really good place to live most of the time that two to three reps in reserve. When you take into account the exercise selection, the loads, the, the, all the things we just talked about. And in addition to the fact that, you know, intermediates, advanced trainees that are probably listening to this podcast are going to be probably training more times per week than the people in the studies also doing a full body training program. Whereas sometimes in these studies, they're only, you know, training their lower body in the study, Mm. other exercises, the total training time that could have independent effects. And then probably just the other, the other thing is that they're lifting heavier, absolute loads. And I think there's a reason to believe that this is totally speculative to be clear. This is my opinion. Um, I think that as people advance in their more neuromuscularly efficient, which often gets thrown around, but let's just speculate. One of the things in specific I'm talking about is like greater ability to accelerate a submaximal load. So if I'm a beginner and I am a really advanced lifter now, my ability to, to accelerate 70% of my one RM and actually exert maximal force into that load probably improves to some degree. At least I, I would suspect that's the case. And that may mean that people that are extremely advanced can train slightly farther from failure, um, and still get a, a sufficient, uh, training stimulus along with all the other constraints we talked about. So with all those things in mind, I think, you know, if you're an intermediate to advanced trainee training with high volumes, probably higher frequencies than all the people in these studies, that's probably where you kind of work your way back from that. Why don't we just train to failure all the time? There's no downside to like, that's where we probably get to that Goldilocks zone on average from a practical perspective. But purely going from the research, again, I think there is definitely a wider range and some more context that goes into that to which if anyone that says like, oh, if you're below four reps in re- or you're greater than four reps in reserve, that's not effective at all. I'd pretty strongly question that claim for sure. Awesome. So, yeah, th- thanks for that, guys, because you, you brought up a lot of cool points and there's like, I think, three things I wanted to reflect on. But um, so first, just kind of let some up. So if. Josh, I, I picked up on like one kind of key sentence that you had there, which is easily rememberable, which was, um, so once you're at 80% of one RM or heavier, then proximity to failure is not really going to be a, a driver. It's more about total repetitions that you complete. What was, do, do I remember well? I, I think that's a, a good mental model. Do I think that's perfect? No, but, but again, I think that's a good mental model, especially if it's a movement like Zach said, that's yes. hardest at a long muscle length. So something like a squat or a bench press um, or an RDL. But if we're talking like like a cable chest fly and you're doing like sets below 10 reps for whatever there, I might be a little bit less confident, but 
to directly answer your question, yes, with with a couple of caveats there. Yeah, and it's 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 difficult because it's really hard. Because like I could come back with a whole bunch of things about like do you really think that like doing like let's say with my eight RM doing seven reps versus three would be equally effective, but we cannot separate at this point like the total volume load and repetition volume as well from from the proximity to failure. So like it would be really hard to prove even if one proved to be more effective like what was it that actually drove the the adaptation yeah. uh, but but let's just for like a theoretical discussion a little bit uh, let's try to actually separate the two so so let's say okay let's say five reps in reserve is as effective as going to failure uh, or or a zero or ir um, in that case do you think that it's more like i don't know, like in the case of I think about protein intake, for example, at this point, we think that, okay, up to a certain point, like more protein has more benefits for muscle growth over that point is basically nothing. You're just kind of like burning it off as energy. And, and it's just another fuel source, basically just a crappy fuel source, but like your body is treating it the same way as like carbs or fats. Um, do you think that? beyond say a five or IR, if, if that's like really at beyond that point, let's say it just doesn't matter. Um, it's more like that, or it would be more like training volume where, okay. Like it basically like up to like a really, really high point, like more is better, but there are just more and more diminishing returns or like a calorie surplus, let's say for muscle growth, like maybe at a 2000 calorie surplus, you're still building more muscle than at a 200 calorie surplus, but like it's just so, so like minuscule, like the extra benefits and you're just getting so much more fed that it's just no point. So, so well, like, is it diminishing returns or do you think like there is an actual like cutoff? Like it actually makes no difference. Like which one do you think it's, is more likely? So I think the way I, I I'm leaning towards the latter, um, but hopefully by kind of talking through this, it'll, it'll clarify, you know, how we think about this. So like, I think there is probably a quote unquote cutoff or at least a practical cutoff of proximity to failure. Um, but obviously it's not going to be like, okay, all of a sudden that rep wasn't effective. Now it is effective. So there's of course going to be shades of gray, but I think practically you can, you can think of it as like, okay, there's probably a cutoff at which point I'm close enough to failure at which these reps are, you know, really kind of providing a hypertrophic stimulus. I think the thing is, is that, um, a, it's probably a little bit further from failure than many would think. Um, but the consideration here is like kind of how many repetitions you actually complete once you're kind of in that quote unquote effective range. So the reason I'm saying, hey, once you get with a, a heavy, heavy enough load, basically you're probably already in that, that quote unquote um, effective range. And thus you're just kind of counting repetitions in that range. Right. So in other words, I wouldn't say that sets of two on a per set basis are just as effective as sets of eight with your 10 rep max. Instead of what I'm saying is you might kind of slightly conf uh, adjust the configuration of a total number of repetitions with a given load in order to potentially spare fatigue and thus have greater total volume tolerance, um, that kind of thing. So instead of doing, you know, uh, sets of eight or nine with your 10 rep max, let's say you do three sets of eight. Um, so that's, that's 24 reps. Maybe you break that 24 reps up into five or six sets 
And thus you can, you know, have a little bit more gas in the tank or be ready for um, an extra day of training frequency, that kind of thing. So hopefully that answers your question. It, 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 it is still thinking about volume, but just with a heavy enough load, you're kind of already in that um, quote unquote effective range is kind of how I think about it. Mm -hmm. Zach, anything to add there? Yeah, not, not, not too much. I think, um, I think the kind of velocity loss research does a pretty good job of kind of showing that, you know, there probably is a bottom end kind of on a per set basis, at least, uh, for, for hypertrophy, like Josh was saying, Zach, when we're Zach yeah. maybe quickly explain like, yeah, yeah, I was, I, was general, yeah, yeah. Yep, okay. I was about to, yeah. So what, what Josh is, what Josh is saying is when we're talking about the 80% like kind of threshold for approximated failure seeming to not necessarily drive hypertrophy that's at a total repetition equated scenario whereas in the hypertrophy world generally you're you know you're talking about um hard sets per week and so one might hear that um you know that comment and be like oh okay i just have to go up above 80 percent and just you know train to a five rir with three sets and i'll get the same effect i don't think that's necessarily the case so there's a series of studies where they'll basically take a given amount of sets, like three sets, and they'll have groups perform that set until the bar speed has dropped a given percentage. And that generally is related to how close to failure you're training. And on average, there seems to be like kind of a threshold somewhere between 20 and 25% velocity loss, um, which is, you know, roughly, very roughly correlated with about half the maximal repetitions performed with a given load. And importantly, these loads generally are somewhere in that 10 to 12 rep max range and heavier. Um, and that seems to maximize hypertrophy or, or come close to it in comparison to uh, groups that train to like a 40 to 50% velocity loss, which often are doing considerably more total repetitions at those loads, which shows there's probably like a bottom end threshold because there's lower velocity loss groups that are doing somewhere between, you know, half and even less of the total work there. And they really don't see much hypertrophy at all. So the point point of what I'm saying there is that there's probably a threshold of like some sort of reps you need to do if you're going to go on a equated set scenario um, to try to maximize hypertrophy with those loads. Um, mm. Josh, I missed anything there. I'm going to try to add another thought, but I'm going to re reconnect it now. <laughs> Seems like that was pretty good. <laughs> um. Oh, but I thought you were gonna go on. Uh, but if not, I can, I can uh, jump in with the, with the follow up to that. So okay, so, so like, and I guess like he, this is a good point to mention that um, we should probably not swing too much in the other direction now either. Uh, where like instead of the effective reps, like this would be the new thing, because. Like this is this is one thing I like to emphasize that we don't have the perfect formula for muscle growth yet. Like we don't exactly know. Like we know some of the components that are most probably important. But like if someone said like, okay, so basically nothing matters as long as I'm let's say at eighty percent of one RM and I get enough total reps. And then like like for example, would you think that if someone did like a a, a set of eight with I don't know, 80% of one RM. So like that would be zero RIR. That would be the same stimulus as doing like eight singles, let's say. This, and this is the, this is the tough scenario. Um, so there are some studies that look at what's called interrepetition rest. So they basically do a single rest a little bit, do another single rest a little bit. And one study, pretty much the only study that I'm aware of that's looked at, um, regional muscle growth, um, 
saw slightly better hypertrophy wasn't significant, but there were some meaningful effect sizes in favor of a group that was just doing continuous repetitions. And that was at 85% of one RM on the bench press, um, and recreational trained people. Um, and so indicates there's potentially sometimes where if you take it all the way on the end of that spectrum, maybe it's not as good, but, um, on average, I would say the, the kind of interrepetition rest in the, the cluster set studies that kind of, kind of do this, uh, seem to find roughly equivalent hypertrophy, um, in, in that, in that respect. Um, but I, I remembered my other thing now that I think is kind of important to bring in this conversation too, is that I, I think a lot of this is dependent on like those mechanistic underpinnings, like I was talking about earlier, which I just don't think we're super confident in. Um, and so like one, one line of studies that I think kind of throws a wrench in some of this stuff, at least it does for me and makes me think like, we definitely don't have all this figured out. I think most people have kind of written off metabolic stress quite a bit. And to mm. be clear, this is, this is my opinion. This is not consensus just to be clear. Um, but there's a couple of studies that'll take 20% of one RM, which from other research we know independently, isn't super hypertrophic if at all. So if you take 20% to failure, you don't really see much muscle growth, but they'll take 20% to failure prior to a training session. And then they'll perform the rest of their training. And if I recall correctly, the, that I was pretty confident that that didn't modulate the proximity to failure for the rest of the workout. So they somehow adjusted load. So that really wasn't a factor, but they basically just had this one fatiguing set with a submaximal enough load that you wouldn't think that's independently hypertrophic. And those groups seem greater muscle growth. And so hmm. to me, basically what that's saying is there potentially is a independent effect of metabolic stress to some degree, which people don't necessarily account for in these kind of models. Now, the way that I think this kind of coincides with everything is like maybe on the upper end of these loading ranges, maybe we don't need to take things as close to failure because you're meeting this threshold of, of load to which the threshold of metabolic stress you need is really, really small. But if you go down the other end of the spectrum, because the loading is pretty small, maybe the threshold of metabolic stress you need is a little bit greater, totally mm. speculative. But the point being there is like, I think that kind of comes to your, your point there is that with those greater loads, there's probably still a threshold we need to meet of like, you know, how many reps or how close to failure we're getting within a set. But I just think on average, I think it's easier to explain it on that way. That's probably a little bit farther than people would generally, generally say, but yeah, it's a lot of speculation there, but I think those studies are pretty interesting, at least for me to kind of make me question. Um, it's only tension and we just got to get close to failure. You know what I mean? Like, I think, I think that yeah. is some pretty interesting studies to think about for sure. Yeah, I know Greg Knuckles made that that point uh, a while ago in an article. I think in in the one where he was criticizing the effective reps model, he he also mentioned that he thinks that it's probably like a combination of like high enough tension and some metabolic fatigue. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, Josh wanted to say something. It sounded like yeah, just a, another quick thing. And and even though you know we kind of have this position of proximity to failure is not driving the hypertrophic stimulus when the load is heavy enough. Again, like I'm really only going to do something like singles or doubles with that load. If I know that there's going to be a tangible downstream benefit of that, because like you guys are talking about, there might be an independent effect of, of some of the, or, or um, uh, independent or synergistic effect of that me metabolic stress as well. Like, for example, we need to, again, think about the constraints of the research we have. A lot of it will only look at one site on the prime mover. So in other words, like if, if you're looking at um, the squat, you might look at 50% of the way down the upper leg on the vastus lateralis. Well, there's a, there's a lot of other sites on the vastus lateralis 
There's a lot of other, um, you know, um, parts of the quadriceps. There's the glutes, the adductors that you'd probably like to see some hypertrophy in. Um, so, so the point I'm making is we can't really make these same conclusions when thinking about those other sites on a given muscle group, as well as some of the synergists, um, that are also involved in a multi-joint movement. And again, going back to when we take a lay of the land training closer to failure or all the way to failure is never worse. Again, I'm never going to go out of my way to train further from failure, unless I know there's a tangible downstream benefit of that. Um, and, and I think that kind of aligns with what you guys were saying about metabolic stress. Yeah, it's, um, and it's also even, it's interesting though, that you said that failure is never worse in research. I, I, I was sure actually that I, I came across, uh, go ahead. Wanted to. Yeah, I was, I was going to make a couple caveats to that. Um, I would say primarily what Josh talked about is probably from like a statistical significance perspective. There definitely is times to which the failure group grows a little bit less. Um, the other scenario I was going to say, in which I, I would be pretty confident, I wouldn't recommend it would be if you're doing concurrent training. So if you're doing mm. some sort of endurance training along with your resistance training, I would be um, probably not recommend that. Um, but yeah, there, there are some studies in which it's a little bit worse, but I think that's mostly from like a percentage change perspective and, and yeah. rarely from like an actual statistical significance. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like there's the, there's a leg extension study from, uh, Centennialo, I think is how you yep. say it. Yep. Um, like, I don't think there was a significant difference off the top of my head, but I think there was a small between group percentage effect size. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but, but like some of the study designs that we see like that that happens a lot more in favor of failure even though there might be a few small instances in which it does kind of failure favor non-failure that makes sense mm. only other thing i was going to mention real quick was we keep saying that <laughs> proximity to failure doesn't seem to drive hypertrophy when you're kind of above a, a certain loading range but i think baked within that baked within that concept it is that proximity to failure does kind of matter because Basically what you're doing, if you're increasing the load is you're making that single repetition closer to failure. So it really is like, there's kind of a, a threshold in which the, the load on the bar does seem to matter, but that's basically what increasing load is doing. If that kind of makes sense. So that's something I just, I just thought about, but yeah, it's, we like to think about it the way we described it, but one could have a critique to say, it's like, yeah, in, in a way you're manipulating proximity to failure of that, of that one repetition. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Like it's it's interesting because this is one of those topics which uh, like no matter what actually pans out at the end, it's probably not going to change like that many practical recommendations at the end because I mean there there are just so many reasons to like not be let's say five reps away from failure for the most part because like measuring progression for example I mean basically the closer you are to failure the easier it is to really measure whether you're progressing and. As you guys mentioned, I mean, strength gains are not the best proxy for hypertrophy, but it's kind of the best that we have in the short term, at least. Um, so, and yeah, like basically the farther away from failure you are, the higher the possibility that you're not actually getting better. You're just kind of grinding closer and closer to failure. So like that that's one problem. Um, another one is... I think just instinctively, like most people will eventually have a hard time always kind of pacing themselves that much. So like, and, and also like the better save than sorry, kind of, um, kind of, um, philosophy on the whole thing. Um, and another thing, and this is again, not going to change in practice anything, but it just makes me wonder 
like when people say that training closer to failure is more fatiguing, in many cases, I'm wondering, is it really like the in, in the muscle fiber, like the fact that you're training closer to failure, is that what's generating the fatigue? Or is it the fact that you did like two more reps, even on the squat or on the leg press, like on a movement like that, that actually makes a pretty big difference. Like if you have a 10 RM, stopping at like seven reps versus doing 10, I mean, those last three reps, I mean, just the, the cardiovascular fatigue that you're getting from that is, is just overwhelming at, at times. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of just rambling. That's, you guys have any input on that? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree with what you said there in, in terms of like, not necessarily influencing practical recommendations, but I do think it can at least allow, you know, trainees and, and coaches to conceptualize it a little bit better and know when you can stray from a standard approach in unique situations. Um, and then to kind of like tie this into what you were saying about leg press, for example, um, and like, Hey, is it actually the, the proximity to failure having an independent role or is it the fact that you're just doing a couple more reps, right? And if you're doing a set of seven and you're increasing that to nine, I mean, that, that is a meaningful increase in like the total volume of that set. So that's a great point. Um, mm. we do have like the, the research would indicate that proximity to failure has an independent effect on training fatigue. Um, so like, uh, I think it was like October or November, something like that of last year, there was a meta-analysis that, that, um, looked at failure versus non-failure. And then they did a sub-analysis in which volume was equated. So, you know, for example, you might have three sets of 10 that led to failure versus six sets of five at the same load. So you're kind of accounting for exactly what you said, able of that differences, that difference in total reps. And in general, um, you know, that the outcomes you see based on that meta-analysis are that even when doing more sets, um, but, but staying further from failure in order to match total reps that leads to less fatigue. Um, but I think from a practical perspective, a point that I always fall back on as, as again, a practitioner is that I think exercise selection likely has a greater impact um, then proximity to failure on fatigue. So in other words, like, mm. I think that, um, if, if you're thinking of a strength athlete that has to perform the squat, the bench and the deadlift, you have some constraints there. Anecdotally, they seem to be a little bit more fatiguing, but, um, you can get a lot more savvy if someone's only concerned about, um, body composition and you can select exercises that, like you said, for a lot of those practical benefits, you talked about measuring progress, making sure, sure those RER ratings are accurate. Um, you know, uh, making sure that your three RER isn't actually a seven RER, right? I would probably first go towards exercise selection in those scenarios, as opposed to, oh, let's, let's just keep those high bar squats in there because they're high bar squats and they're, they're, um, they're, you know, inherently beneficial, mm. um, but do them further from failure. I'd say, let's get you on the leg press or let's get you on something where we know you can push really hard and, and it's not going to beat you up. Um, so that's another practical point to really agree with you that even though we kind of talk about this stuff on the fringes, it might not actually change these, these practical recommendations. Right. Right. Zach, you, all right. I got, I got a list here of things that this was thinking about. <laughs> so nice. Um, one thing I think is important to kind of go back to some of the factors that I think are important to consider when we're talking about this research and Josh has brought up a great point. 
Um, one thing I think is often not discussed enough with proximity to failure is as you get closer to failure, anybody knows if you're performing a set of squats, you're going, your technique is going to change no matter what you try. And mm -hmm. if your technique doesn't change, you're likely not actually training uh, to momentary failure. And because of that, I think that is an, another thing that's in the research that's somewhat of an artifact um, that if you're using a, a multi-joint exercise that has a lot of degrees of freedom. Now, some of the research, um, actually, I'll come to back to this, but yeah, if you're using a multi-joint exercise that has lots of degrees of freedom that isn't on a fixed path, that may be one, like one reason those may be not showing the same difference in you know, groups training very close to failure and farther from failure is just because like Josh said, we don't measure the muscles that, you know, the load is getting shifted to. So for in the example of the squat, maybe five reps in reserve is just as good as one rep in reserve. If we don't control for like the, the technical aspects of that, because you're just, as soon as you get close enough to failure, your quads fatigue, you're just going to turn that in essentially into a different exercise. Mm -hmm. So, um, to which the stimulus for the quads maybe isn't actually you know, benefiting from those last few reps. Now, if we put you on a leg press or something like that, where you're not able to shift the loading demands to other muscles, maybe that's where we start to see, um, you know, slight differences because then maybe that, that, that actually does matter. So I, I don't have like a super strong opinion on that, but I do think that's like an important consideration to think about is like technique changes as you get closer to failure, which ultimately will change where the load is being placed as far as muscularly. So that, you know, is a theoretical reason why, why that may, impact the results at least. Um, another thing I was going to say is that I think often in this conversation, it's really easy to dichotomize these things and talk about them like they're mutually exclusive and obviously they're not. So Josh talked about one approach that I think you could somewhat apply these ideas, both from a practical perspective, but also if you think the rationale is good uh, to train a little bit farther from failure, maybe you work up to like a set of eight at a nine RP or, or one RAR. So that's like a really heavy set. And you're getting to have fun because frankly, that's just more fun when training for hypertrophy is doing a set that's close to failure. Um, mm -hmm. and you're able to track progression with that one set. And then maybe you apply some of these, um, some of these ideas to potentially spare some fatigue on your, on your, uh, later sets where you're doing maybe like little mini sets of four with that same load or something like that. Um, and that could potentially, you know, spare some fatigue for the rest of the week. Um, maybe later exercise in that session, rather than going three sets to a, you know, one RAR on a squat, that's pretty, pretty miserable. Um, that kind of thing I think is important to point out. It's like, these things definitely aren't mutually exclusive. And I think for hypertrophy, especially, I don't think I'd ever, ever really view them that way. I would always use it as something like kind of like a small change to maybe potentially help something else out rather than like my default, uh, protocol for most people. And then the last thing I think is like, super big and just like something we just have essentially no data on is just how this stuff is actually, you know, working on the individual level. Like we can make pretty large swaths of, you know, average, you know, uh, accumulation of, of the means and everything of like what on average happens on average, you know, training closer to failure. If you're above a certain load, doesn't really seem to impact things, but I don't think, to, at least to my knowledge, we don't have any like really solid individual level data where we take somebody that, you know, maybe does like two of these different protocols where they train with like a, the general standard hypertrophy range and take those sets to like one to two RIR. And maybe they do more of like a power builder type pro approach where they're using heavier loads on average and maybe staying a little bit farther from failure. Like those kind of things are anecdotes that people have all the time. And anybody that just immediately dismisses somebody's anecdote 
about, Hey, this really seems to work well for me. If I, you know, train a failure with low, lower loads, or maybe vice versa, where I'm doing 10 sets of three on, on squat and my legs are absolutely blowing up. Um, I think either end of the spectrum, like that very well could be the case, um, on an individual level. And we just simply haven't had the sufficient investigation of that to my knowledge, to be really confident that we know how this stuff works on an individual level. Of course we can have like starting point recommendations, but if a client strongly feels that something is not working from them on either end of the spectrum, you know, it could be grounds to try the other end of the spectrum just to see how it goes. Because we just, like I said, there's a lot of things about hypertrophy we know very little about. And I think opening your mind to that. And I think that's really like the way that we view this is that's the important thing. We just want to put options back on the table, especially from an individual level is like, if we don't have this hard and fast cutoff of one to four RIR, and if I do a set of five RIR, man, I, I need to go, you know, run back to the dumbbell rack and do another set quick or else I'm going to, you know, <laughs> not have any uh, stimulus from that. Um, I think ultimately it just empowers the coach and the athlete to be a little bit more exploring uh, of different things and like honor the individual like response even more. Like, I think that's ultimately what, uh, if you get anything out of this conversation, I think that's what it is. It's like, these recommendations are just that starting point recommendations and they're, and they're there for a reason. But if you want to experiment, I think we have the data to say that that's not a completely foolish move. Super, super quick example. I'm six foot four. If I were to do, Mm. if I was constrained to zero to two RIR for um, RDLs, no, no, no chance. I'm doing more than a, a couple sets a week. Oh yeah, actually, that that's one thing. The RDL is is an example I wanted to bring up uh, earlier. Is that I I think in practice that's like a, a true zero RIR and especially failure. But I think even zero RIR, I I don't think anybody can do that in practice unless they are like completely suicidal. Because like simply. I mean, yeah, like someone could get really pedantic and talk about the RIRs of each muscle group involved in an exercise, but like, I think the lower back for everybody, I mean, for you, especially if you're, if you're that tall, but the lower back is going to give out before the glutes or the hamstrings, I think for most people. So, I mean, unless someone is like really reckless and they're letting to round, let their lower back round a lot, everybody's going to stop before like everything would truly give out. So um, that, that's, that's a good example. Um, yeah. And it's, it's really interesting because especially anecdotes are really tricky to, to use here because like someone could bring up Dorian Yates, of course, like he, he would be a famous example of a lower volume, really high, uh, not high effort, like really close failure proximity kind of person. Uh, so someone could ask like, okay, like, could he have gotten as big as he was, if he didn't do those like super hard grinders in his training, but man, like maybe not like my instinct would be to say like, no, like because his volume was quite low, he had to train that, um, not effortfully that close to failure, (laughs) but at the same time, like it's, it's hard to tell because I mean, Dorian Yates, I mean, just look at his physique before he even like did anything, anything seriously. Like he already looked better than most people will in their entire lives as a 16 year old kid. And then, you know, later, like he was one of the first people to use growth hormone and whatever he had, plus the insane genetics. Plus he actually did a lot of these like build up sets to those like really intense sets. So who knows? I mean, maybe he would have. So, so it's, it's really hard to tell. Um, so one thing though, I, I would like to ask you guys, and, and this is just like, I would just like to get your opinion. Um, so 
probably it's really hard to answer answer to this. So just like what what your gut says, but like one reason why I was always skeptical about like these really far away from failure kind of uh, training methods to work effectively is because then I would think that like we wouldn't have so many people that are just like spinning their wheels in the gym, not going anywhere. I mean, for one, like, I don't know how it is in the U S but here, like certainly like 90% of the people in the gym, like they just look the same like year after year, if they are even there for multiple years, <laughs> but, but, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure, you know, like the prototypical, like intermediate person who finally decides to like get a, a good book on training or reach out to a coach or something, because for the last like three years, they haven't gotten anywhere. Like, I feel like, man, like if it was really just about like getting in enough reps at, at like a high enough, uh, like close enough or high enough percentage of one RM, then it wouldn't be that difficult to grow, but in, in practice, it is actually pretty difficult for a lot of people. So, so like, how, how do you reconcile those two things? Cause for me, it's difficult. Yeah. So I'll, I'll chime in here quickly and then Zach, I'll, I'll see what you have to add. That That's a really, really good point. First of all, um, thank you. I, where my head goes, and this is something we really like to emphasize, especially related to, um, like, like the power lifts, right. Is that like a set with like a true five RAR is, is not super easy. I'm oh, not yeah, saying yeah. it's, I'm, totally. I'm not saying it's like, um, it's as hard as a set to, to two RAR, but like a true five RAR, especially if you're doing multiple sets, um, and generally on a higher volume training program, like that's, that's not an easy set. Mm -hmm. Um, especially when you start to think about, um, different exercises, Right. And I think it's, it's funny, especially in the kind of the strength training world. Um, if we're saying, Hey, it's okay to accumulate sets of like three or four and, and hang out around, you know, four or five RAR, as long as you're doing sufficient volume, we kind of have to like pause because we're like, wait, actually we think most people are kind of doing this anyway, because they're rating something at a two or a one RAR when in reality, if they had two or three researchers right next to them, spotting them and um, giving them tons of verbal encouragement, just on an everyday training session, they might actually be at four or five RAR. Mm. So that's probably what my answer is, is like, I think, and, and, you know, if you just take your average, you know, gym goer, um, that isn't necessarily seeing progress, they might not even be close to kind of this, this general proximity to failure threshold, even if that threshold is like five to 10 RAR. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of where, where my head goes. Um, I have other thoughts related to how absolute load influences this, but I'm going to hold off on that for now because that's, that's a bit in the weeds. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that was one of the first things I wrote down as well. I, I call this the runaway effect in like, I think for people that are new to the gym, I think this is like something that is, is pretty common if they don't understand how progressive overload works and like all that stuff. Like, so basically we just talked about the case, why this loading threshold is really important if you're uh, trying to train farther from failure and, and maximize hypertrophy. Basically, if you take anybody in the gym and you train them for consistently for one or two weeks, that 80% point has moved considerably. So if mm. they, if they don't understand how progressive overload works, that 80% load that they're trying to target is going to just completely run away from them. If their progress, if their progression isn't appropriate, now they're doing that six sets of five with 60% of one RM. And now you're just that that's when the scenario happens where you're just kind of pissing away time at that point. Mm. Like that is not using that sufficient loading range to try these strategies and, and hopefully, um, have 
you know, you know, the results we're talking about. So I think that's where measuring progression, like you talked about is super, super important because if we're saying this loading threshold is vital in order to utilize these, these strategies, you have to have a way of knowing you're within that. So for powerlifters, again, our kind of world, this is very easy because we're going to take a top set that's over 85% of one RM almost in every single session to assign loading for these submaximal sets. So that's very easy in our context. For hypertrophy, it gets a little bit more difficult. And that's where I'm saying these non-mutually exclusive approaches, I think are essentially mandatory because you have to have a way to establish that loading range. And so a top set there where you're taking a set of eight to one to two RAR is essentially telling you what your 10 RM for that load is that day. And then from there, you can try some of these approaches, but you can't separate a strategy that's going to tell you the correct loading range from training close to failure, because that's really the only way you're going to know. So Mm. if you're just training farther from failure all the time, I'm skeptical, especially if you're early in your training career that you're, you're using that, that load. Cause like Josh said, it's going to be pretty uncomfortable. Like I, I have tested this out myself where I've done 30 singles with 75% of one around mostly for a strength contest context, but like I've done that and it's, it's mentally, if anything is just mentally exhausting and it's, it's harder than you think. Um, so I, I think that's like taking that to the absolute, um, minimum proximity to failure and, and seeing how that would go. But um, the other thing I was going to say is like this, this is at least really holds true for me because um, I was one of the dudes that, you know, push pull legs when I was in high school and like took literally every mm-hmm. exercise I knew of in the gym. And I actually did train to failure. Now I was doing so much work that I'm sure that's probably the reason I saw essentially zero progress. <laughs> but I think a big thing there is, is exercise uh, execution, I think is massive. Um, and so if you're, using these submaximal sets and you're not placing the load on the tissues you're trying to grow appropriately. I think that's like a double whammy of things that you're probably not doing very efficiently. So if you're squatting for quad growth and you don't know how to go below parallel appropriately, keep the, you know, your balance on the middle of your foot and, and try to actually load your quads in a squat and you're quarter squatting and, and not really you know, actually stimulating the tissues, it really doesn't matter in that instance, like what load you're using, because you're probably not getting enough range of motion and all these other factors that we know are important for hypertrophy to, uh, to maximize things. So I think that's just another important thing to think about is like a lot of people that don't really know what they're doing in the gym necessarily, like right at first, that's probably a big thing that they, um, you know, probably could, could do a little bit better. And that's something, you know, we're still learning to this day. And if I'm speaking for myself, um, yeah, I think that's probably the main two things I got. Yeah, yeah. Th- those are great points. And um, just going to reflect on this quickly. And then I will quickly want to ask you about the uh, long muscle length uh, consideration, just because uh, you guys both mentioned it, but just to um, make it a bit more clear to the listeners. And then um, I have another uh, question on the like who the participants are in these studies, because I think that's also a, a consideration. But on the progressive overload front, like I... It, it, it's one of the, the mysteries to me, like how does progressive overload actually work? Cause like, of course, initially I also had the thought of like, well, I mean, progressive overload just means like going heavier and heavier, right? Like you, you have to make it harder and harder. And then I had the, the understanding of, well, no, it's actually like, you kind of just want to keep it as hard as you go on. Cause like, you just basically upping the load so that you're keeping pace with your own adaptation basically. So otherwise it would get easier and easier. Um, but then like recently I started actually going just a little bit back to the, like the previous model that I had in mind that like, actually maybe 
there is something to the to the the fact that like you actually have to increase the load like proactively otherwise like you just cannot nothing happens because I don't know, like recently I kind of just uh, started getting a bit complacent, for example, in my own training and just like, well, I mean, these sets are hard. So, I mean, things must be happening, even if I'm like not really like logbooking things that much. But I think you get to a point in your training where like it, it never actually gets easy enough to where you would feel like, okay, maybe I should go heavier, right? Like I, maybe in the very beginning, it does happen, although I'm thinking maybe even for like rank beginners, it doesn't happen because otherwise they would probably feel it that like, dude, like this is just too light. Like I have to use a heavier dumbbell. So probably if you're not actually increasing the weight, like you're kind of lifting it and it feels challenging, but it doesn't mean that you couldn't complete basically to the same RIR something with a higher weight. Um, so I don't know, like, like that to me is a big mystery, but at the very least, it, it tells me that that's why it's important to log your training. And I mean, we do know that most people don't log their training in the gym. Um, but do you guys have any input on that, like progressive overload weirdness I just uh, talked about? I know it was kind of a random weird point, but. No, I think like shout, shout out to Brian Miner. I think we mentioned him earlier in the podcast. Yeah. Um, like obviously, whenever someone talks about kind of a a paradigm shifting concept like he initially introduced of like, hey, progressive overload is the result of adaptations that are accrued as opposed to something that is required to continue to make adaptations. People are going to kind of like take that too far mm. in, in ways that he probably didn't intend. So like I always like to frame this as like our, our intention is always to like go in and like beat the logbook in a way or at least be aware of like where your performance was previously and if within the constraints of the protocol you're able to perform an additional rep or add two and a half kilograms awesome you should absolutely do that so i think if you have the constraints properly set within the protocol that that progress is going to naturally emerge but the issue is is when you kind of again take this concept too far and you say oh it's just going to kind of fall in my lap Right. I yeah. think you kind of have to have that intention of, hey, throughout this six week training block, like I should be able to add, you know, at least a few reps to this set type of thing. Um, so I almost think it comes down to the, the psychological approach. And like you said, logging your training, being aware of kind of where you're at um, and always having that that progression mindset as to not take that too far. Mm. Yeah, well said. Uh, cool beans. So, um, yeah, let, let's quickly lash out this, um, long muscle length, uh, versus short muscle length concept. So, um, yeah, I think now it's, it's becoming a pretty hot topic, which, which is good. Cause I, I do think that, um, it was kind of something that anecdotally, a lot of us observed that like, yeah, if, if, if we are not getting a big stretch on the muscle, then, um, well, for one, we're not getting as sore, which might actually be a good thing, but but then it it just uh, seems to be an important thing for growth. Um, but so do you guys, so first of all, do you guys think that if someone is training uh, exercises or doing exercises which train the muscles at long muscle lengths, then a higher proximity or higher reps in reserve count would be effective? And secondly, like how, how much do you actually believe that that could actually be more important than even a full range of motion? Cause I feel like that's going to be the next effective reps, uh, thing of the, of the industry. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I, I think the first thing to acknowledge is like, Josh, tell me if I'm wrong. Um, to my knowledge, we don't really know whether the taking the muscle to a long length relative to its like maximal range of motion is what's important. Or if the exercise is most challenging in that kind of stretch position to my knowledge we don't really know which one of those yeah. two factors is like the not totally clear yet yeah like the the key the key part of that so just just to kind of demonstrate that from a practical example like when i'm when i'm making the slight difference there is that for example like a um oh man this is challenging um like a leg extension, let's say let, let's say you have a, a magic leg extension machine. Let's just use that example. Magic leg extension machine where you're able to uh, take your knee and flex it literally to its maximal closed knee angle. So your, your feet are as close to your butt as possible um, mm-hmm. and your knee is, is maximally flexed there. But the exercise is still most challenging at the top when you're like just completing the rep in that leg extension. That would be an example of taking the quads in that exercise, at least to, to their a long length, but it's not most challenging in that position. Mm-hmm. Now let's have an alternative scenario where we have a leg extension machine. Maybe that isn't quite as close of a knee angle, pretty close, but not all the way. And it's most challenging at the bottom that would be challenging in like a stretch position. And then you could, you know, start completing the repetition and it gets a little bit easier. We don't really know which of those two things, maybe they're both important, but at least separating those two factors, I don't, to my knowledge, we can't really separate those two things. So from the research, really all we can do is kind of say both of those things to some degree are infiltrated into the results. And it seems at least so exercises that are more difficult in the stretch position or in general kind of train the muscle at a relatively longer length seem to not require as close proximity to failure. Um, however, one thing that I think is important is that often those exercises are the ones that we train with heavier loads as well. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of a, also a hard thing to kind of, uh, you know, decompose there. So, in general, at least from the experimental research we have, I think if you're training an exercise that's more challenging, like in a stretch position or potentially trains the muscle at a longer length, I think you can probably get, you know, a little bit farther from failure and be okay. If I have like a super speculative opinion reason why that could be the case, if we kind of revisit that model where we have kind of a threshold for load or tension or whatever that we need to hit and a threshold for metabolic stress that we need to hit, um, you know, the passive tension associated with um, training those muscles at a longer length or in a more uh, stretched position could be kind of checking the box of load a little bit more or tension a little bit more so that less metabolic stress is is needed, similar to training with just heavier uh, percentages of your one rep max. So mm. that's generally how I think about it, but there definitely is, is more data needed um, to kind of uh, expound on this further, um, in my opinion. Awesome. Josh, any? I don't have. Any, I don't think I've. I don't have anything to add there. I think. Um, sorry, Zach. I, I was trying to pull up some studies. Did you mention the passive tension stuff? I said passive tension. I didn't go too far into it. If you want to discuss it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I, this this isn't something I feel super confident talking in depth about because it's it's not something I'm like try to keep up with um, full throttle, if you will. But um, I think, like Zach said, anecdotally, it seems to be the case. 
if we look at the studies that kind of lean in favor of training um, closer to failure, for example, for example, a study by Martorelli is a study that is often cited in favor of training to failure. That's a bicep curl study. Um, even though those differences weren't uh, statistically significant, that study is often used. But if we look at like some of the velocity loss research um, that typically use squats, right? Typically, uh, which is going to be harder at a longer muscle length, right? You kind of see this pattern emerge. Um, and I also think there is a, um, I think there is a mechanistic explanation for this. If we kind of think of, Hey, at the end of the day, the reason there is inherently going to be some sort of proximity to failure threshold. Again, it's just a matter of where, where that is. Um, uh, that proximity to failure threshold is probably a threshold of the tension on each individual fiber, right. Mm. Or, or on rather, it's probably better to think of it on an, on an individual fiber basis. Right. And if the muscle is under tension at a longer muscle length, often what you will see is greater passive tension tension. So basically, uh, kind of those connective tissues, basically wanting to get back to like the normal resting muscle length that provides tension in and of itself onto the muscle. So you have both active tension and passive tension at a longer muscle length, kind of artificially increasing the tension on an individual fiber level and thus allowing you to be, um, you know, further from failure, but still seeing the benefits as opposed to, uh, an exercise that's going to be harder at a short muscle length. Hmm. Zach, I don't know if I said anything that's no, totally I, off the rails I, there. Pretty speculative no, I, and also not something that like we would say we're, we're, we're experts on. Yeah. The, the only thing I just, I just really need to think through before I like commit to any one view is just the per fiber tension stuff. Like I think that makes sense to a point for sure. Um, and, and that would, that would, that model would seem to explain why, um, you know, exercises that train longer lengths and such are a little bit more hypertrophic, but you know, I think it is challenging to have the proximity to failure conversation with a lot of that research and how, you know, per fiber tension changes with fatigue. I think that's a really complex area of research. For example, just like a, just one point about this, again, this is just something Josh and I definitely don't think we're experts in, but it's something that's relevant to this conversation. I've tried to look into a little bit is, you know, you, if you fatigue a muscle fiber, the, the force output of that muscle fiber goes down and theoretically that would reduce its tension. However, I've seen at least some papers that suggest as a fiber fatigue, it's also more resistant to stretch, meaning mm. that in a way, despite the active force decreasing because it can produce less force in a fatigue state, potentially it's resistant to stretch and its eccentric forces would go up. So like, that's just mm. like a part of the model that just like, it gets challenging when we start how, and that's why I kind of try to start the conversation of like, man, we could sandbox mechanisms all day long. And it's just like, everybody could have an interesting point of like, well, no, actually it works this way. And it's this way. And they can kind of build this house of cards into some practical recommendation. But I think in my opinion, like, it's just, it's way, way safer of a bet to start up here at the actual experimental evidence and kind of work your way backwards and try to assemble some mechanisms that seem to make sense. But I think the main point in this conversation is at least from the few studies that we have, which once again, haven't elucidated all the factors that are relevant training at a longer length or a uh, exercise that's more challenging in that stretch position, you seem to be able to train slightly farther from failure. Although there's not perfect comparisons and there's not really a study that has manipulated exercise selection and proximity to failure that we would likely want in the order to be like really confident in that claim. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it, that that's uh, it makes total sense. And I I, I think um, I think I heard Greg Knuckles uh, say this on a podcast before, um, which is kind of along the lines of what you mentioned here at the end is like because we just don't have like the mechanisms completely worked out and we just don't know exactly what the perfect formula is for muscle growth. Like it's really important to just not take one of these pieces and just like run with that because then inherently like you're basically doomed to come up with something that that is going to have not not only flaws in the long term but probably you're going to be made fun of it if you're like someone famous and you're like building something really big up on this one thing like the effective reps one i think was was actually even though it's probably not correct in the way that it was laid out but i think it's still a useful thing because um Probably for most people, it actually was beneficial that they thought of it like, okay, like I have to train hard enough. Um, but uh, but yeah, basically, yeah, you, no, that's it's it's totally super agree. good point you bring up. Like, yeah. I think the reason I'm so sensitive to that, like mechanisms versus outcomes conversation, is because I've made that mistake so many times, mm-hmm. and like I've seen that just completely sabotage my own training many many times. Like for yeah. example, the effective reps thing. Like I can vividly remember. Um, making like an effective reps calculator and effective reps of volume load <laughs> yeah, <me> calculator <laughs> in my, in the, in the library one day when I was, um, you know, getting ready to go train. And then I did some absolutely absurd 10 sets of three RP nine squat <laughs> protocol. Cause I was like, I'm going to get strong and jacked at the same time. And obviously we know from any practical perspective, that is just absolutely asinine, um, to which ended about how you would expect. So like, that's why I'm so sensitive to it because if you take these proxy measures or any of these like theoretical mechanisms and run with it all the way down the track, it just, it can lead to some really non trench tested approaches. And I think that's why it's just important to when you kind of enter the, the you know, whatever the evidence-based community or whatever, and you find a lot of this stuff interesting, I think it's like hypothesis generating more so than recommendation generating, I think is the best way to view any type of mechanistic evidence like that. Um, it's interesting and it can help maybe, you know, tweak a few ideas here and there, but like if you're making a calculator based on like the impulse per fiber theoretical, you know, amount or whatever, like it's just that you can get to some pretty, pretty crazy spots there. Like, well, yeah, if mechanical tension is all that matters. And these guys say that I don't need to have a certain reps per set to maximize hypertrophy. I'm just going to do 31 RMs in a workout and that'll be, you know, optimal, like things like that. You can just get to crazy endpoints that I don't think anybody would recommend practically. And yeah, don't want to do that for sure. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. There was volume load. There was time under tension, like how many seconds a set has to be then effective reps. Now the next one is going to be long muscle lengths. So now it's it's like people, like I'm going to see people just, just doing like lat pulls. And I was like, like this, like <laughs> completely skipping the bottom. And it's like, well, okay. Like, yeah, like long muscle lengths, like, like that, that's really good. And probably like, if you're going to do something like partials or whatever, maybe, maybe that's, that's what you should be doing. Not the other end of the partial range, but like, man, like there's a reason why your arm can move in this whole path. Like maybe, maybe let's not, not skip this entire second half of the movement. I think that's why it's so important to kind of delineate between, do we just simply need to go through that range with like some sort of loading, or do we need to make the exercise most challenging at that point? Because again, Mm. that can lead you to some pretty weird conclusions. Like the, the back works, a perfect example is like, okay, if we need to move through the most stretch position and at least have the range of motion include that, okay, that, that, that's a pretty reasonable thing. I'm going to have a lat pull down. I'm going to stretch it all the way up and I'm going to, and I'm going to bring it down. And that's going to look like a totally normal exercise. Now, if it 
if we find that the exercise needs to be the most challenging in that, you know, stretched or, or, or lengthened position or whatever, that's where it's like, okay, that might actually change training quite a bit because pretty much every back exercise in the gym is going to be most challenging at a contracted position. So it's that it's like that delineation I do think is pretty important. Cause like you said, if, if we find out that maybe it is that lengthened position or that stretch position that has to be most challenging, people are just going to do bicep curls and just get their little quarter inch range of motion and, yeah. and, and, and go to town. So it's, it, it's, I think that is a really important piece before we kind of, um, and probably want to see multiple studies on that before we just kind of ditch the full range of motion thing that is pretty trench tested in my opinion. On the, on the topic of like metrics for these things is like, e- even if we do, you know, more stuff continues to come out and like Zach, like you said, you know, it becomes very clear that you need the hardest part of the range of motion to be at a long muscle length, or at least like a, a long relative muscle length, I, su- I should say. Um, I I'd also still want to see, I'd want to see that like beyond just matching sets, because, uh, I think anecdotally exercises that are going to be harder in a shortened position are going to be more tolerable. Like they seem to cause less muscle damage, less fatigue. So I'd almost want to see like just some sort of like, I don't know, like quote unquote fatigue match protocol. I don't know like what the set ratio would be, but I'm not going to write, I, even if that study comes out or, or five of them come out, I'm not going to completely disregard, um, you know, something like a pec fly because it's hard at a short muscle length, because dude, you can, you can dude you can do lateral raises. Like you can do five sets a day and be fine. Like dumbbell lateral raises. Um, and if you, but if you compare, you know, 10 weekly sets of those to 10 weekly sets of cable lateral raises, sure. You might see the cable lateral raises do better, but again, you, you might be able to tolerate two or three times the volume on, on like a mm. dumbbell ladder race. Yeah. I think that's like a super interesting question. Cause like you'd really want to see a study that kind of does three things. If you really want to explore the the practical implement implications of these ideas, like you'd want to see one study that does full range of motion that includes the, the length and portion, right. You'd want to see one group that does the, the length and things only and then you'd probably want to see another group for, I think a lot of these people that are like really into the biomechanics of everything would say, well, yeah, that's for, for these particular fibers. So we want to do that. But then we also want to have another movement that is challenging in a contracted position and does isolating those as opposed to training them just all in the same movement, full range of motion. Does that matter? So it's like, I think that is really interesting. And also I think jo- like Josh's point is super well taken in my opinion is like, I view that now as like, rather than oh, this is challenging in a contracted position. Therefore it's a garbage exercise, especially in our world for like strength. Like if I have somebody doing like a really highly fatiguing squat session on Monday, that includes, you know, a a lot of work over 80 and 85%. Then, you know, if I want to try to increase their weekly training volume, but I want to do that in a low cost manner, I think targeting these exercises that are more challenging in a contracted position is just like a way of like introducing that gradually, just like anything like we would do with sets or reps or RAR or whatever. Um, it's just a, just, it's just another tool that like probably exists on a spectrum and has a variety of use cases, just like we're talking about with proximity to failure right now. I don't think it's like, Oh, okay. These exercises that people have been doing for, you know, 50 years or whatever to get jacked that are more challenging in that contracted position are just totally useless. I just think it's probably the slightly bifurcates the tools and and their use cases. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's all all great points. Um, so yeah, guys, I think um, 
because we're coming up on two hours and um, I think uh, you're, you're going to get hangry. You didn't have a lunch yet, maybe. <laughs> uh, or maybe you're doing intermittent fasting, like OMED. So, so then that is not an issue. Then we can go for two more hours. Just kidding. Um, That's a touchy subject for Zach. Really? Why? <laughs> I did some gnarly stuff with intermittent fasting back in the day. I'm not proud of, but, you know, it is what it is. Really? I, yeah, like like 3,000 calories, like chicken and baked potatoes and like one meal is pretty bad. Like, I'm not proud of that, but yeah, I, I oh. did it for, for like a year. Oh, then 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 I, I add, I'll do you. I did. Um, I also did one meal, but I so I was following like high fat, low carb and, you know, like high fat. So car, calories don't matter. So what I was doing is um, I had almonds, but I was putting them on like slices of, of butter. So basically, like I used the the almonds as like the bread, basically, and like a like I basically went through like not not only a stick, but often like an entire like two hundred gram pack of butter in that meal, often. Um, but considering that, I actually did pretty well. I don't know how I didn't get like super fat. I think it's because I a lot of it I just passed through because like I just couldn't absorb any of it. Uh, you, um, you just you just finally keto adapted. You you hit that magical well, point. Yeah, that you, you you just did. It's always always one extra week than than the study does. Always it's always one extra yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, I mean, yeah, or maybe maybe like those ten grams of carbs from the almonds. Like maybe that was a bit too much. So if if I eliminated even that, that would have been better. Yes. It's not this not the six thousand calories from the almonds, of course, that mattered. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, so I, I guess like as a as a final question, just um, so practical recommendations. So like like what would you say to to someone who like despite like all the theoretical knowledge uh, that you've get, gathered, which went against a lot of the grain. Um, if someone is maybe not a ranked beginner, but um, I don't know, intermediate has been lifting for like two years, things are starting to slow down. In general, how far uh, would you say they should be training from failure? Maybe like some specifications with like, with these movements, this, this far. So uh, I, I don't know, I'm going to leave it up to you. Yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah, I think uh, so. I'm assuming we're, we're talking about this in the context of hypertrophy. Yeah, I think uh, you know the the main thing here is like I always think about this, like you said, and you you brought this up a couple of times, and I think it cannot be overstated how important this is. Like we often talk about training design and and, and programming and all that stuff, and it's like in a short term microcycle, but because we're so limited with our tools and the research by far the most important thing is setting your programming up to have adequate tools to make adjustments over the long term so i think that like that needs to be like stated on the front end so when we're talking about proximity to failure i think for hypertrophy at least the best tool we have is going to be like performance on you know relatively low skill movements um and i think because of that in order to actually gauge pro progress accurately especially for someone who's intermediate and maybe not have the best gauging of how far they are from failure, probably including some sort of indicator sets or tester sets, whatever you want to call them on a few movements uh, for each muscle group um, that are somewhere in the, you know, zero to two reps in reserve range probably makes sense. Um, in my opinion, purely from like a diagnostic perspective, we could have, again, we just had a two hour podcast talking about the nitty gritty details of like, Oh, does that actually necessary to optimize? that from a practical perspective, I think that stuff should be in there for that reason. So you can actually have performance that you're diagnostically tracking over time to say, is what I'm doing working or not working? And I think these should be movements that you try to keep in a vast majority of the time. So you can look back on, you know, your training for a very, uh, you know, long history and be able to try to identify trends, things that worked well, things that didn't work well, all that kind of stuff. I think that's a really, really useful component that everybody should have in some fashion that can be on a 
completely different exercise for every person. It can be a different rep range, whatever, two reps in reserve all the way to failure. I think all that stuff is relatively immaterial. It's just the fact that you have on some movements that you try to keep in your rotation almost all the time. You have a set that you're pretty damn confident you can evaluate your performance on generally going to be somewhere in the zero to two reps in reserve range from there. I think the, you know, the kind of the, the, the rest of it, I think is like contextual to the rest of the way that you build your program. And I think that's a pretty common thing you hear. If you're somebody that's going to train less sessions per week and the fatigue or whatever you want to call it, uh, implications are less relevant. I think from an efficiency perspective, it probably makes sense to take each set closer to failure. If you're going to hold my arm down and make me define that range, I probably would call close to failure zero to two reps in reserve to true momentary failure. Mm -hmm. Um, and then if you're somebody who's experimenting with a higher frequency training program, training with maybe more sets per week, if that's something you want to give a shot, maybe that's when I'm going to start dialing the RAR for even those exercises down a little bit. Maybe you shift the range to one to three, two to four RAR for those exercises that are, you know, lower stress on average, the consequences of training closer to failure are much less pronounced and on average are going to be stressing the muscle more so at a contracted position. And you're generally going to train with lower percentages in your one around shifting to the compound movements because on average I was going to be training with higher absolute loads, probably have more degrees of freedom and are going to be more challenging at a relatively stretched position. I think you can probably be safe in taking those uh, movements a little bit farther from failure. If you wish, again, it's going to be context dependent. If you're using those movements a lot, you have a higher frequency, higher volume training program, probably makes sense to leave a few more reps in reserve on those movements. If you want to, with the understanding that if I am, uh, staying a little bit farther from failure on multi-joint movements. I'm probably getting adequate stimulus for the prime mover, but I may be leaving a little bit on the table for some uh, different regions of that muscle and the synergistic muscles like the triceps and the bench press, for example. That's not clear and cut, but again, if we're talking about the better safe than sorry principle, I think that's something to be aware of. Um, is if Again, if you're making me really define my range there, if you're training with sub 80% of 1RM or like sub 10RM loads, I probably would stay in that, you know, somewhere between the, you know, one to five reps in reserve range. But if you're training with those heavier loads, like we talked about 10 RM and greater, I think you have more flexibility and can pretty much organize that however you see fit. Um, and, and again, that'd be on those more multi-joint exercises that you're in out on average using heavier loads. Um, yeah. And I think the, the rest of the details, as far as like, that's how you may set up an initial training program. But then like we talked about, as far as individual differences and how that actually is going to lead to progression. That's why those indicator sets are absolutely vital in my, in my mind, because we can, we can speculate the average response and how much it matters in a population level. But for you training closer to failure, may be a really, really important factor. And the only way you're ever going to know that is experimenting uh, with, you know, kind of both training styles at some point in your training career and having that indicator exercise to indicate objectively is my, you know, rate of strength progression actually increasing on these exercises that I have in rotation pretty much all the time. So the skill adaptations are a little bit mitigated. I don't think completely, but to some degree they are. And yeah, I think that's really how you're going to have to go about it. And I think I would encourage people to give both training styles a shot. Um, you know, maybe give some of the higher load, higher RER training a shot. If you never have anecdotally, in, at least in our coaching perspective, uh, some people seem to do really well with that, even for muscle growth. Um, but at the same time, don't take this as us saying, yeah, fatigue is bad. Can't train to failure. It's, <laughs> it's all evidence-based, you know, isn't, isn't training to failure. I would never take that position. I would, I would say that's 
somewhat ignoring the limitations of the data that are vast and many and having that period in your training career in which you're doing that consistently, I think is very important for everyone, even if it just from the practical perspective to anchor RAR for the rest of your training career. If you never trained a failure, I think it's pretty accurate to say you're really never going to know what that true five RAR is, is like Josh talked about. If you're taking 80% for multiple sets of three on paper, even if you say five RAR, isn't that challenging? It is like, it, it just is, especially if you are training with heavier absolute loads, um, the stronger you get, I think that stuff starts to matter in my opinion. So taking that all into account, that would be kind of my short summary. Ooh. Just, just, um, to emphasize two things to make this super quick cost benefit analysis. I think that's just the best way to think about it for hypertrophy. Um, you can start experimenting with, with higher RARs in some of those contexts Zach outlined, if you, there's it's kind of a problem to be solved. Gosh, one second. My academic advisor is calling. Sorry, guys. I might have to dip for one second. <laughs> sure. And then second thing um, would be to, to take notes and to try to kind of figure this out for yourself because we, we see a, a huge kind of push towards individual response in the strength world in the sense of like, okay, we have kind of these starting points for best practices for strength training. Um but individuals are just going to differ a ton in terms of the overall training dose and the configuration of that training dose. Right. And, you know, athletes, powerlifters that I've worked with for, for two, three, four years, um, their programs diverge a ton, right? I have some people hitting top singles on their bench press five times a week. And I have some people that I couldn't dare do that more than once a week. Right. Mm -hmm. And those are just like individual differences. Um, and I think if you can take that in the hypertrophy world a little bit more, by taking really good notes, taking measurements, progress photos, taking notes about your overall life context and how different approaches, uh, you know, influenced outcomes, then you can take a step back three, four years down the road and really have a better idea of kind of, you know, what is the best approach for you? Um, so yeah, those are, those are the two things I'd, I'd emphasize cost benefit analysis, take good notes for yourself so that you can figure out what works best for you. Yeah, no, those are those are really good points. And um, yeah, I think, uh, again, I think uh, Greg Knuckle, I don't know why, like these old podcasts are like <laughs> pop popping into my head all throughout this discussion. But yeah, I think uh, Greg Knuckle said um, when I interviewed him was that like, it's good to just um, look at your training log. Again, that's why it's good to even have one in the first place. And like, there will be times when you, you will just notice that like, yeah, my, my training is just good or was good yeah. in this period. And then um, you can kind of just contra contrast things and uh, you will you will kind of learn what um, what sort of setup works better for you. Like, is it like closer to failure, farther away from failure, um, maybe a bit more sets that are submaximal. So, and yeah, like your your mileage may may vary. So uh, yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Cool, man. Then, um, well, I think you will you will have to speak for <laughs> Zach as well here. <laughs> uh, was it his advisor? He said that he called him. Yeah, so, looked like he got a couple calls. So, so then Mike Zordos uh, joined us on the podcast, um, like even, yeah. even without seeing him. Um, yeah, that, that, that's that's he showed up. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna put his name in the title. 
<laughs> It'll get more clicks that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, cool. So yeah, then um, just uh, can you please, uh, well, first of all, like thank you so much both for you and Zach to uh, to join me on this call. Like uh, it was uh, really informative, and I'm I'm really happy with how it went, and uh, I'm I'm excited to release it because I think uh, it's gonna do very well. So so thanks so much, and uh, just please uh, let us know how we can. Um, find you and and also zach maybe if he <laughs> is not returning no he, he's not getting any plug it's, it'll just be me um but no okay. first of all huge thank you for uh having us on um you know when 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 you invited us um zach and i are like yeah we both we both uh listen to the show so we're fans of the show so it's very much an honor to be on so thank you in terms of of finding us and, and kind of where you can um you know keep up with what we're doing probably the the best hub is instagram so I am Strength and Zach is Strength. You can find all the links and all that good stuff from there. Um, but yeah, I mean, hopefully it was pretty clear that we're open to, to changing our minds about these things. And um, it's definitely nothing set in stone. Um, so we're, we're always open for discussion. Um, you know, hit us up through through Instagram DMs or email or something like that. We're always, always interested in, in uh, any additional idea fuel someone might have. Awesome. Uh, well, it was a pleasure. And uh, so, Josh, um, yeah, thanks so much again for being on. And uh, tell Zach uh, also that uh, I thank him for being on as well. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, everyone. Take care.